I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, as specifically we're going to be taking a look today at chapter 5 and verses 1 through 8 as we continue on in the song. And I'm not on, here we go. Now as you remember, or at least I hope you remember, everything has been leading up to the wedding between the Shulamite and Solomon, the beloved Uh, And I also hope you remember that as we look at Song of Solomon, we're looking at uh, a poem, a beautiful love poem that has two different perspectives. The first is obviously this idealized love between a man and a woman in the covenant community. Uh, Whether or not it was actually uh, King Solomon talking about one of his marriages, we believe that Solomon obviously wrote the song. But regardless, it is this idealized view of what love should be between husband and wife uh, within the believing community. And then, of course, there's the higher perspective. It shows us what the relationship between the believer and Jesus Christ should look like. And we're going to see today as we look at the Song of Solomon that sometimes our relationships here on earth and our relationships with the Lord, or our relationship, I should say, with the Lord, uh, does not go as smoothly as we would like, that sometimes that, uh, that sweet communion is broken, um, and we are encouraged here to do all that we can to restore it, no matter what the cost is. But before we read the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the Word, and let's ask for his blessing. Sovereign Lord, I pray now that you would help me to open up your scriptures to your people. These words are just as true today as they were when they were first penned by your servant. And we know, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit speaks to us through them. We pray, Lord, therefore, that these things would not go in one ear and out the other, but that rather, Lord, they would, they would sink down into our hearts and there produce that kind of harvest that you want. May we be changed by your word, improved by it, made more like Christ, and help us, O Lord, to take these things to heart, whether we are considering our earthly relationships or whether we are considering our relationship with our Father in heaven. Now, Lord, please be with us. Help me to speak. I'm a sinner with feet of clay. I cannot possibly hope to open up your word without your Spirit's power in me. Help me to divide the scriptures aright. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Song of Solomon, and I'm going to be reading chapter 5 and verses 1 through 8. I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. To his friends, eat, O friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Shulamite, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved that you tell him, I am lovesick. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In uh, old Disney movies, uh, before the current age and the current Disney zombie that uh, occupies that, uh, that particular position, uh, and still to this day, you will find those kinds of movies where true love 
uh, is perfected here on earth. You have the prince and the princess. Uh, they find each other, and after a number of difficulties here uh, on earth, uh, they, uh, finally they get married, and then they live happily ever after. The scene fades to black, and we just assume their marriage went perfectly. Uh, they'll still try to do that uh, on the Hallmark Channel, obviously, and uh, their difficulties are usually humorous as opposed to uh, life-threatening. But once they finally get together, once they kiss and the sun sets, everything is good. Everything will be happily ever after from here on. But those of you who have been married know that is not the case with marriage in the real world. Marriage is not one continuous unbroken ascent. It is not leaping from mountaintop to mountaintop. And the joys of married bliss do not continue on absolutely uninterrupted 24 by 7, 365 days a year just does not happen. And this book, The Song of Solomon, uh, though it is poetry, it sums up not only the joys of married love, but also the difficulties of married love. Also, we remember that, as I mentioned before we got started, this is an analogy for the believer's communion with Christ. And we know that on this side of glory, uh, even after we have come to faith, the process of sanctification is not one continuous upward surge. We sometimes begin to lose our passion. Our love for Christ diminishes. We become cold. We look upon ourselves and, and we wonder, where did, where did my zeal for the Christian faith go? Where did my, my love for Christ go? What has happened? There are times when the heart that once burned with passion in intensity for, for Christ grows very, very cold by contrast. And that is something that we need to watch out for and then work upon when we find ourselves in that situation. Now, there is one thing we need to remember before we get down to expositing the, uh, the actual verses here, and that is um, in, in earthly marriage, the problem is rarely, if there is a problem within the marriage, it's, it's rarely just one person causing the, uh, the, the problems. There are usually problems on both sides. Sometimes it is one person in particular, but, you know, there are two sinners yoked together for life, and you can expect that they are going to have problems and get on each other's nerves and so on. But in the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church, and this is vital for us to remember, the cause of the problem is always the bride. Brothers and sisters, it's always us who are causing the difficulty. If there's an interruption in our fellowship with Jesus, Jesus is not to blame for it. So in this idealized poem, uh, talking about it, uh, unfortunately, you're going to find that the bride is always the cause of the problem as well. So, uh, but I just wanted you to know, we all know that that's not always the case in earthly marriages. And so on. I'll move on from there before I get into trouble. The, the marriage uh, at this point in time uh, in Song of Solomon 5.1 has taken place. It is now speaking of not just two lovers moving towards marriage. It is talking about the love between a husband and wife. Verse 1 is filled with obvious allusions to lovemaking. She is the garden filled with exotic spices that Solomon had come to. Uh, and there is, you can plot your way through the book and figure out what he's, he's talking about at various points. Earlier, the man had used honey to describe the sweetness of the woman's kiss. Here, he states that he ate the honeycomb along with the honey, most likely emphasizing you know, that totality of, of, uh, of their, their intimacy. Um, oh, boy. Anyway, I have, <laughs> I have drunk my wine with my milk, both milk and wine. They appeared earlier, and it, it's... Uh, stating the woman's love is better than wine. 
he longs for her kiss, and now it is unreserved. Everything is open to him. They can enjoy love. One of the funny things is, in the modern world, um, as you look at media and all of these things, whenever it's love and intimacy and passion and lovemaking and so on, it's always unmarried couples in the world and in the media. That's, that's what they think, you know. It's, a, it's like you, you marry and you die or something, you know. Now we're married, we can go back to, you know, just sitting in chairs and looking at each other with, you know. I, it, it, it's this bizarre and actually, statistically speaking, completely backwards conception. Did you know that married people make love more than unmarried people across the board? That's, that's the fact. Uh, one of... Um, uh, my pastor friends, Nick Rich, was talking to a group of, uh, they were evangelizing in Baltimore, and uh, they got around to talking about, uh, about marriage. And uh, he said, yeah, it's, it's great. And they're like, marriage is great? Why is marriage great? And he's like, because of the stuff that you can do? <laughs> you know? and, and, and began talking to these young men about uh, the benefits of marital intimacy. And they were wide-eyed and amazed. And uh, uh, so apparently nobody had, had said that before them. But we have this wrong-headed idea about marriage that it's supposed to be sterile, that it's supposed to be loveless, that it's supposed to be joyless. That obviously is not what the Bible teaches us. And I hope not what you experience in your own relationships, whether present or future. Um, so we have here, obviously, this description of the passionate lovemaking that occurs, but then the setting changes dramatically. The setting here is, once again, it's obviously night, but the Shulamite is sleeping alone in the locked house. And earlier, you remember, in, in chapter 3, we had this dream sequence uh, that occurred before the marriage. She, um, her lover came, and he calls for her. And she doesn't, uh, she, she turns him away, and then he goes, and on that occasion, she, she get lungs for, for him, she gets up, and she goes searching for him, and after the search, without too much difficulty, she finds him, the first pursuit, and successfully with the woman finding her beloved. But the second night search here, as we'll see, is brought on by her own coldness to uh, her love here. Uh, and it's much more, it's lo much longer and more difficult, although eventually, as we'll see when we get into chapter six, it does end with her finding him. Now, one of the big questions that commentators ask as they look at this particular chapter of Song of Solomon is, is she awake or is she dreaming once again? The problem with poetry is it always has kind of a dreamlike quality to it, generally speaking. It's not written the same way as history is written. Uh, so there's tons of metaphors and so on. Um, and she says, uh, the Shulamite says, verse 2, I sleep, but my heart is awake. Now, when we're talking about Hebrew poetry and indeed uh, the Old Testament generally, the heart is the center of the soul. It's where the thoughts took place. They didn't think of it as the organ that pumps blood through the body. They thought of it as the the place where your conscience and your consciousness are located. It's the place of, of all thought and all emotion as well comes from the heart. They didn't have a, a division as we do between head and heart. They, the ancient Hebrews, and they were right, understood that emotions and thoughts go together. They're virtually inseparable and they're all tied to the will. So one of the things that in the Bible we find most interesting and most important is the fact that God deals with our wills. We are, when we're converted, made willing to believe in the day of his power. Our desires are changed because the Lord understands that we are not thinking automatons. You and I are not biomechanical machines who spit out data on a regular basis. We are animated by our emotions. And in Christianity, in regeneration, 
when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what has happened is our desires have changed, our heart has changed. But in any event, we're going to see a, a very quick heart change occurring here. Uh, she says, I sleep and my heart is awake. There's an idea that she's dreaming, her mind is still active, uh, and she is awakened um, by the husband's knock on the door. Perhaps he's been knocking for quite some time. Uh, in answering the, is it a dream question, I find what uh, Ian Duguid says is actually interesting. He said, interesting, he says, why did the man leave so swiftly? Where did he go? Why did the guards of the city beat the woman and take her veil when their earlier encounter in chapter 3 seemed unthreatening? This turn of events is particularly hard to explain if the woman were actually the wife of King Solomon. Heads would surely have rolled for such an assault on a member of the royal harem. And after her painful encounter with the watchman, though presumably now in a bruised and bloodied state, why did the woman turn so calmly to address the daughters of Jerusalem as if nothing untoward had happened? These kinds of unexplained situations, bizarre events, and sudden shifts in the action are typical of dreams, but not of everyday life. I, I know not all of you are married, but I, I imagine all of you have dreamt. And you know how weird some of the situations are. They, they switch. You'll be feeling anxious about something. I, I want you to know, I, I want, and, until I absolutely lose all capacity and my mind you know, melts away, I will never come and preach to you in my underwear. It's never going to happen, okay? It has happened in my dreams, though. I've been called up, okay? And I, I suddenly, I'm like, I'm not only not dressed for church, I'm not dressed. <laughs> and I'm like, why is this happening? <laughs> why did I do that? So that's, that is the kind of thing that happens in a dream. And hopefully at some point you realize in your dream, I'm dreaming, okay. Uh, you find yourselves in dilemmas and things like that. They just don't make any sense. They've got this Dali-esque view uh, or a sense to them and you, you move on and wake up. But you know what your mind is doing is dealing with the struggles, what your soul is doing is dealing with the struggles of your life, trying to interpret them and putting them in a, uh, in a format that your unconscious brain is, is dealing with. God often spoke to his people through dreams in the, uh, in the Old Testament and through the prophets. And so we know uh, that the dreams of men are important. They're a window, in a certain sense, upon the soul and the state of it. Troubled dreams are usually an indication of a troubled life. Now, I believe myself, for all the reasons that Duguid uh, went through, that this is a dream. But as I said, her dream arises from real-world problems. Um, and I, I just want to warn you, if you ever do study in the Song of Solomon, and I hope you do, a lot of commentators feel, uh, think that this section is, they just go nuts making uh, allusions to various uh, you know, lovemaking and so on. Um, but the interpretation falls apart, the idea that uh, when she gets up and, and uh, you know, her hands are dripping with myrrh and so on, uh, it falls apart when one considers that lovemaking was obviously the objective of the man, but he goes away unsatisfied. So that, that can't have been what was going on. She is awakened by his knocking, and she hears her beloved's voice. And he says to her, my head is covered with dew. That's probably a reference to sweat. Probably he has come from a long distance. But in any event, she says, I have, I've, I've already gone to bed, honey. I'm sorry. This is, uh, uh -uh. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? She has washed her feet, she says. We forget that in the ancient world, um, and to this day, in most of the world outside of Europe and America, the floors are dirty. 
the mission team that went to Rwanda, I'm sure, can tell you that that was the case. Uh, you know, when you have you don't have concrete, you don't have tarmac, you have a lot of mud, you have a lot of animal waste and so on, and you would be walking through it, usually wearing sandals. And so when you came in from a hard day or just walking around outside, one of the first things that you would do uh, before you got into bed was you would wash and dry your feet. You washed and dried your feet when you came into the house, and then you would wash and dry your feet again before you drew your feet up into the bed because you didn't want to fill your bed with dirt and, and so on. She says, I've already done that. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to have to go through the whole process again. And I, I can't go to the door naked. I've already taken off my robe. I'd have to put clothes on again to answer. So there's a hesitation. She doesn't want to go and be bothered to let him in. Now, before she was willing to go uh, you know, through the fields at noonday to find her love, but now it seems that the passion has died a little. Not tonight, dear, I'm tired. The passionate intensity has gone out of her to a certain extent. And the woman is once again the locked garden that she was before marriage. She is not amenable to his overtures, except uh, that now the, the problem is the marriage has taken place. And so this is no longer, this isn't a positive assessment. Before, when she was refusing uh, her, you know, his amorous intentions before they got married, that was good. But now uh, her passion has, has stilled, and it's actually, it's, it's bad. Um, we read that he puts his hand in by the keyhole. And uh, I, I love that particular verse because it is, to my mind, um, and this is an, a side note, in the KJV, uh, it is... It is probably the best uh, example of why uh, we need the new King James Version, why we needed an update to the, uh, the old King James. Because in the King James, uh, it doesn't translate very well. This is the King James Version of 5.4. My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. A modern audience just does not get that, that picture. Um, so it seems terrible. Um, <laughs> So what, what are they trying to say? Well, you know, he fiddles with the door latch, uh, but his attempts to release the internal bolt were frustrated. But the, uh, his, his attempts uh, are enough to arouse the woman. Her feelings were stirred. Um, and there is, and I will, I will get, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> Myrrh would not have been something that she put on before she went to bed normally. You know, I'm going to douse myself in liquid myrrh now, then go to sleep, okay? It just didn't work that way. And she wouldn't be like, all right, honey, I'll get up and let you in. First, I have to douse myself with liquid myrrh, and then I'll go to the door and so on. This is um, uh, probably uh, an allusion to the woman's physical reaction to her lover rather uh, than anything else. It's a, a dripping myrrh is, is a reference to, to what she's looking forward to. Uh, so she, is, she had been cold, now she is aroused, she is happy, uh, and she gets up to open the door. But what happens when she does get up to open the door? He's gone. He's disappeared. And she says, my soul went out at that point, my nefesh. Uh, it's, that's your life force. It's almost, I, I died in that moment a little when I, I realized he was gone. Uh, and in this uh, case, she has only her own slowness to respond, her coldness to blame for that. Uh, it, was, it was wrong. Her passion was diminished. Um, and 
so she goes out looking for him, and then she has this awful encounter with the, uh, the guards. You remember the men who we spoke about in chapter 3, who they were the night watchmen. It was their job to make sure that the thieves weren't about and that the drunks were uh, keep, kept under control, and also to, um, uh, to deal with prostitutes, who were the other people who were wandering on the streets at night. And they obviously, they thought that she was a prostitute, that she was walking around the streets seeking custom in the dark. They did not recognize her as a member of the royal household. And what happens? Well, they end up um, beating her uh, and taking away her veil. Um, and that is very, obviously, it's very sad. Um, she's punished, in essence, for her unwillingness to pursue uh, that, that sexual intercourse with her own husband. She, uh, in that particular idealized situation, it was, it was wrong. And so the watchmen have punished her. We can, we can talk about, uh, no, let me get to that later. Um, but she then enlists the help of the, the daughters of Jerusalem before she had been speaking to them, don't stir up love before it's time. But now she is saying, tell him I'm sick with love. Find my love and bring him to me. Uh, she, she is now frustrated in that she cannot get that reconciliation with her husband, even though she is searching for it. She wants that. Now, um, if I can make some applications of this, obviously, one of the things that's front and center within the poem, and the original readers would have seen it immediately, is that uh, there's a difficulty here in the sexual relationship between the, uh, the husband and the wife. And that does happen. Sex is uh, far from the, uh, the only place where you have difficulties in marriage, but it is, in my experience, actually, believe it or not, alongside money, the most common reason for disagreements and differences and splits between spouses. It's something that they argue over and something that, if it isn't resolved properly, can, can produce, uh, ultimately, uh, divorce or at least this awful distance and a very cold and loveless relationship. I remember I was a, a young man, um, and I, I went to a, this was probably, no, not two decades ago, but, but close to 20 years ago. I remember being in a conference, and a pastor, an older pastor, uh, was talking about the importance, he'd been going on for a long time, about the importance of maintaining your primary relationship with your wife as a pastor, not allowing that to die. And he was talking about the importance of maintaining that passion, that love within your marriage. And he made this statement, which at the time, it absolutely floored me. He's talking to pastors, and he says, I bet there are men here who haven't kissed their wives in years. And, you know, here I am, a young man, and I, you know, I, I kind of inwardly chuckled. But then I looked around, and I realized there were a lot of guys who were kind of staring at their feet. I realized he's right. How can that be? Um, incidentally, uh, in case you're wondering, yes, I, I, I kissed my wife this year. So um, <laughs> if you're looking for uh, occasions for doing that, incidentally, can I recommend cruises without kids? They are... Um, they're, they're wonderful things. But moving on. Coldness and poor relationships can easily lead to separation, distance, isolation, 
And as Ian Duguid puts it, he says, it's easier to break a relationship than it is to mend it. What the Song of Solomon, therefore, is doing is encouraging us. When we see those signs of distance, isolation, lack of passion, and so on, uh, and to understand that these things are not uncommon, they can occur even in this idealized setting here, uh, to make the effort and take all of the risks that are necessary to restore the relationship. To work at it, it does require effort. Your relationship with your spouse will always require effort. We are called to it. But she's the beloved, and the Lord has put her in your hands if you're a husband, and the Lord has given him to you as husband if you're the wife, and it is your calling to be their helper, the wife to be the helpmeet, and the, uh, the husband is supposed to fulfill a role as the fuller, the launderer, the one who is helping his wife in the process of sanctification, the one who stands as the pastor also within the, that particular family, the spiritual leader of the household who is deeply concerned with his sheep. One of the things that you need to remember, husbands, is that shepherds were supposed to know how their sheep were doing. They were supposed to feed their sheep. And if you are the shepherd of your household, you need to know how your wife is doing, how she's doing emotionally. And you need to be able to feed her spiritually and to give her the right kind of advice. And so the song encourages us to do all that. When your relationship is not going right, don't just let it go on. Work on fixing it using the advice that we get in the Word. And you're going to get more and more of that as we go through the Song of Solomon. But that is doubly true. If that's true of our relationship here on earth, it's doubly true of our relationship with Christ. And remember that when there is coldness there, that the problem is on your side. Now, I could go through all of the reasons why people can go through spiritual declension, that they can feel a separation from the Lord and Savior. Usually, when we begin our Christian walk, it's with intensity, it's with great passion. It's like, it is like the love affair. I remember we, you know, my wife and I, uh, people would see us coming, and they're like, oh, no, they're going to evangelize us again. You know, we, we uh, <laughs> I had my relatives, I've said this before, they used to, spend all their time trying to make sure that the conversation couldn't go in a spiritual direction. And then you could see their faces when they realized, I've got you! I can talk about Jesus now! That's my opening! And they'd be like, oh. <laughs> you know? But every, every moment, you know, we wanted to tell somebody about Christ. We wanted to tell them about, this is the, this is the wonderful Savior who has saved us. And when you are, when you're newly married there is that same passion and intensity. Hey, you want to see a picture more? That's my wife. So that, that kind of thing. But then, unfortunately, that can diminish. Just as in a human relationship, the intensity, the passion, the initial joie de vie that you, you had, uh, it can gradually begin to grow very, very cold. And that's a very sad thing, but it's very much the same with the church. And this is true in every age. And remember this, brothers and sisters, we can be very, in fact, deeply orthodox and yet have no passion, no zeal, no intensity for Christ. In fact, not to love him at all. Jesus himself, for instance, brings that charge against the churches in Ephesus. If you'll turn with me to Revelation and then to verse 1, we read there, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. 
And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now, those are all good things. Those are the kind of things the churches should do. But the next line would be very frightening. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. What is he saying when he says you've lost your first love? You don't love me like you used to. Your intensity has gone. And I have to tell you, when a church begins to stop actually loving Christ, when the members of the church begin to stop loving Christ, eventually the orthodoxy dwindles as well. It, it, it can't be sustained. And your intentions, your, your attentions as well, begin to turn in other directions, away from Christ. You become involved in, in politics and social justice and other things, a myriad of different things that by themselves might not be bad things. I mean, it's not a bad thing to be involved in charity as well. But it is a bad thing when you're involved in charity because you don't love Christ any longer and you want something interesting to do. So brothers and sisters, be very aware of that, that we will not be orthodox if we don't love Christ. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commands. That's the only way that we ever will, if we love him with that deep intensity. So we need to, when we find ourselves becoming cold, one of the things that will cause that coldness is a lack of the means of grace. It is not surprising that two people who don't talk to each other much grow distant, right? If you don't talk to God in prayer and you don't hear his word in the word itself, you will grow distant from Christ. If you are not actively, for instance, attending upon the means of grace, listening to the word preached, reading it for yourself, communing with your brothers and sisters, singing his praises and singing with grace in your heart and joy and love, one of the worst things to see in any, well, no, let me back up. The worst thing to see when, when singing is going on is somebody who's just standing because there's no, there's no desire in their heart to, to sing. They don't think of, you know, they don't feel any of the words in the page or any of that. The second worst thing is somebody who's singing, but utterly, you know, they're just, the words are coming out. There's air going into, you know, uh, the vocal cords and, and the sounds are being formed and so on. Uh, but there's no heart to it. And afterwards, you could ask them, what did you just sing? And they'd say, be like, what? What do you mean? No, the words you just sang. What did you just sing? That was a paean of praise to Christ. What did it mean? Was it? I just sung. Um, That's not the way we're supposed to sing. We're supposed to sing with grace in our heart. A love song sung to your love without passion. You know, I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. You're the greatest. (laughs) Uh, That is what Christ receives from many congregations. I hate to say it. Day after day, Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, it's not, it's not genuine, and it's not worship. So brothers and sisters, remember, there needs to be certainly knowledge in our worship of Christ, but there needs to be zeal. There needs to be love for him. There needs to be that desire when we have the, the, the sins that break up our fellowship with him. There needs to be that desire that animated the heart of the prodigal son to go back to the house of the father. We need to return and to stop doing those things that have brought the cloud, the break between us. Remember that your relationship with Jesus Christ, this side of heaven, 
is going to always have to be first in your heart. Your marriage will be second, but both of them require your effort. They really will need you to be there uh, and present. Marriage is not something you can phone in, and your relationship with Jesus isn't either. It's got to be something that's active, that's powerful, that's daily, and that is receiving your attention because it's the most important thing, really, in the universe. Let's go before our Lord now. God, our gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word. It tells us so many things about the believer's relationship to his Lord, but it also gives us practical advice in our marriages. I do want to pray for the marriages here tonight. I pray, Lord, that uh, there would be uh, that not just storgy affection between uh, two old friends or acquaintances, but there would be also that, that, uh, that beautiful Christian agape love between husband and wife, and also uh, eros. I pray that that would remain part of their relationship as well, that they would uh, have that, that intense desire for one another that never diminishes, that simply grows older and better as the years go on, and that they would love one another as one flesh, Lord. May it be that you would bless the marriages here that way, whether they already exist or whether they will come into being. We pray, Lord, that you would give them that blessing. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name.